You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. If you're here, if you're at home, you're probably already sitting down, so stay there. You'll be good there. Um, isn't it great to be back worshiping together? If we're just humming along, isn't it so much better than watching on TV? Amen. You can clap for that. <laughs> much rather hum with you than sing my guts out by myself at home with my family. So uh, glad you're here today. If you're at home, we're glad you're with us as well, and I'm really thankful that we can have this opportunity to even give you uh, the worship and the word through this venue in this uh, crazy season that we find ourselves in. Uh, but for all of us, let's get right into the word of God today. I know you came here uh, not for each other, not just to hum along, but to hear from God, and that's my prayer. And so uh, the book of Joel today, you know, to probably take a few minutes to get there. Uh, where is Joel? It's after Hosea, before Amos. I know it doesn't help you at all, so look up in your dictionary, your concordance, uh, where it is. It's in the minor prophets. We are studying uh, the minor prophets with a major message. God is breaking into the world and shouting to us in a significant way through the minor prophets. And this week, we're at the second prophet in in order of the way it's laid out in the Bible, the prophet of Joel. And even though there's only three chapters in Joel, remember last week Hosea, 14 chapters, I had to scoot to get through it all. Uh, Joel, only three, but these are three action-packed, life-changing chapters filled with spiritual dynamite that will actually change our lives if we simply listen to what God says to us through the prophet Joel. Upon first read the book of Joel, probably a lot of you only read it once because you're like, man, that is an intense book. You read this the first time, it's almost like a doomsday movie. It's almost like an Armageddon thing. You're like, man, there's all this destruction and all this doom and all this chaos and fear and pain. It leaves us a little bit uneasy. It paints a different picture than the comfy, cozy God that a lot of us have set ourselves up to believe is the full reality of God. It it, kind of makes us feel a little queasy seeing that God isn't just this this God who gently floats along the clouds and the world's going to get better and better and better until it's going to be pretty much utopia here and then Jesus is just going to join us and it's different than that. And yet, in the end, this book is also a book of promise and hope and anticipation and ultimate freedom for those that are found in Jesus Christ. And so if you're sitting here today, if you're at home today and you're thinking, I don't feel like a doom and gloom, I want a nice, comfy, easy, make me smile message, this will be that as you see the hope of Jesus Christ for those who have put their full faith in him. So hang on, don't leave us yet. God has something to say to us through the book of Joel. Here's the background of Joel to help you understand. I had a chart last week. I'll put the chart up again uh, today of where the prophets fit in. Well, Joel's here at the back. Is he a little star? We really don't know where Joel fits in because really nothing in this book tells us much about Joel, much about the culture that he lived in. And really, we don't know really anything about Joel except it's recorded recorded here in this, this three chapters. And so we're doing our best to say that he probably prophesied around 835 to 879 BC. Why do we think that? Because in Jesus, or in the biblical days, they understood the timeline of the prophets by who is reigning king. And nothing in here says there's a king reigning. And so that leaves us hanging. So we can assume possibly that it's because this was a season where there was no king reigning. That was a season that was happened in uh, Jerusalem's history and Israel's history when uh, Queen Athalia actually governed for a short time. Athalia was the Ahab and Jezebel's daughter. Those two names ring a bell, right? Wicked Ahab and wicked Jezebel. It was their daughter, and she reigned for a little while. Then when she died, she left her throne to Joash, this little kid who is still basically in diapers. He was the king. Little kid, big crown, like gagagugu. So he really didn't reign. A priest took over. That was the priest Jehoiada. And so we can assume that probably in this day and age, which means that he was, Joel was probably at the same time as Elisha, one of the earliest prophets. And uh, really, I don't think God told us what the date is because it really doesn't matter, to be honest. The message is more important than the date. He doesn't want us debating all these different things. He wants us to hear the message loud and clear. And so we get in here, Joel chapter 1. Here's what it says, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. This is all we know about Joel. He had a dad. Who here doesn't have a dad? 
We all have a dad, right? His dad's Pethuel. What do we know about Pethuel? Really nothing, except that he's obviously a God-fearing man because Joel means Yahweh is God. So Yahweh, the four letters, Y-H-W-H, they didn't have vowels back then, Yahweh, it's called the Tetragrammaton, four letters that really tell us who God is. He's the Jehovah, the Lord. He is, I am who I am. And so Pethuel said, my son, Jehovah, Yahweh, is God. Other than that, we know nothing about Joel except that he was headhunted by God himself, tapped on the shoulder, brought into the fold, and you have a message to tell. And we know that the prophets didn't have an easy-peasy message. They didn't, when prophets came to town, they didn't the billboard, you know, the prophet Joel's coming to town. People weren't flocking to the stadium to hear Joel. They were actually probably uh, running away from Joel. They would probably want to stop him from coming to town because his message was one of actually the day of judgment that's coming for all people. The overriding theme of Joel, again, we know nothing about him except he was a bold and courageous man because he preached the message of the day of the Lord to a world that didn't want to hear. So the message of Joel really is the day of the Lord. God's wrath and judgment are coming five times. It says this in the book of Joel. You can circle it in your Bibles. You have it open. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15, the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, the day of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 11 and 31 and 3, verse 14. Simply put, here's Joel's message. The judgment of the Lord is coming to all believers. Get that? The judgment of the Lord is coming to all nations or unbelievers. But the reality is that it's a purification and restoration for believers that's going to come through suffering. And for the unbeliever, it is impending death and doom. That's a book of Joel in a nutshell. If you want a spiritual awakening today, this is a good sermon to be in because Joel is going to rock us to the reality of the coming judgment of the Lord. You want want to be rocked out of complacency today? A great place to be because God wants you to not just know these truths, but to live in light of these truths that your life will be set apart from him right now and forevermore. So as we get into this book, I'm just going to stop and pray because... Uh, I need prayer, you need prayer. We want to hear from God. I don't want to manipulate this or say anything that's not supposed to be said to you today. Uh, We want to hear exactly what God's message is. And like I said, it's filled with judgment, but it's also filled with unprecedented, unparalleled hope for the believer of which we can rejoice. And so let me pray as we understand that God is coming for us, that we will come back to him. Let me pray this morning. Father, we thank you for the reality of your word. We thank you for the reality of what you've given us in your word, a clear picture of who you are, a clear understanding of who we are and the culture we live in, the clear reality of what needs to happen for us to be reconciled or brought back to you. Father, I pray today that by your Holy Spirit, this wouldn't just be a doom and gloom sermon, but this would be one which drives every single person in this room and through the camera right now, drives every single person to their knees in repentance and to a place where they long for you you, oh God, above all else, where they desire you, where they will do anything, will we do anything it takes to simply live our lives in tune with the God of the universe. Oh Lord, would you please do this? I can't make this happen. I can't communicate this well enough or strong enough. Only you can, God. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, invade each heart in this room and at home right now with the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's my summary. God is coming after you today so you'll come back to him. Here's the first point you can write in your notes. Let me summarize quickly. Uh, I want to say right at the forefront, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. I thought, you know, overviews of the minor prophets, the easy, easy kind of thing. It's hard to get it all in. So I will speak a little quicker than I normally do, I think, today. And you're like, what, what? But I'll try not to, but I want to get you into a place where you see this And actually just want to go home and read and study more. But here we go. Number one, God has all authority to bring the heat of judgment into our lives. Here's chapter one in a nutshell. Tough times are here. Bring on the locusts. Look what it says in chapter one, verse two. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all the inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? 
Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and the children to another generation what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Clearly the whole crux of it here is in verse 4. This is a terrible day for the land of Israel. This is a day where Joel is prophesying in a time where the locusts have come. And what's it say like three or four times here? And they came and they ate everything and left nothing. It's a locust plague. God to Joel, hey Joel, I've got a plan for you, I've got a message for you. I want you to go and speak destruction to the people, the coming judgment of God in a day when they're already seeing it right before their eyes. We think COVID is bad. Oh my goodness, check this out. Locusts are devouring everything. You ever been up north and the black flies are so bad you open your mouth and you just get a mouthful of ooey gooey goodness and you're like, why did we come up here? We just want to go home. Picture that times a million. A locust plague was nothing to like, oh, a few black flies. No, this is way worse than that. What's a, what's a locust? This is this little grasshopper with horns, really. It's a tame little animal that usually runs on and flies solo, but in unusual circumstance, they get together in a gang and they swarm. And actually, there's locust swarms around the world right now as we speak in Africa, the Middle East, and India. This gives you a picture of it right here. This is happening in the world right now, BBC News. And, and this, is, this is what was happening in, Egypt, in Israel, but like way worse than that. So it's not a good day for the people. And it's interesting. It's interesting how, think of a locust. Like, I don't know about you, but I'm scared of some things, but not a grasshopper. Not a locust. They're tame little things. They're like, done. And yet God uses the simple things. Uh, you, you don't think God has power? He uses even the innocent little grasshoppers to bring his judgment. That's how much power God has. Oh, you want to you think that God is nothing? God's just like you. No, God can take you down with this tiny little grasshopper. In fact, look at the Old Testament in Exodus, the plagues of Egypt. That's what he did. He brought down a powerful nation with a simple little bug. Revelation chapter 9, he's going to bring the locusts back in the end times. Just so interesting. There's a theme here. I always think, why did he pick locusts? I think it's because it just shows like, God doesn't need anybody or anything to work on his behalf. That's how powerful he is. And so locusts are a theme throughout the whole Bible, and yet here we see here in Joel, look at the graphic image. They're swarming, they're cutting, they're hopping, they're destroying. Again, you don't think of locusts like that, but when God wants to use locusts for his own purposes, it happens. He even says a little later on here that, these, that for a nation has come up against my land, a powerful and beyond number, the nation is locusts. Its teeth are lion's teeth. Well, locusts don't even have teeth. No, it's a vivid imagery that Joel uses. He's actually really powerful powerful writer. He, he draws us in with similes and metaphors and imagery. They have fangs of a lioness. No, they don't. They don't hurt humans at all. But here's what they did do. They laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. What was happening here is that the locusts were destroying absolutely everything in front of their eyes. Complete destruction. Fig trees, a Vines, a symbol of fruitfulness and wealth, were gone. Fig trees, even the bark is gone. Pomegranates and palms and apples. Basically, everything is done. Here's what's happening in Israel's day. The economy is stopped. Verse 16, the supply chains are empty. Even religious festivities can't be played out because there's nothing to sacrifice to God. Doesn't it sound a little bit like COVID-19, to be honest? Everything stopped. Even religious stopped. Religious stopped. And the first chapter isn't just about the locusts, it's actually a call to action. If you look at, if you look at this in verse 3, look at some of the words that he uses, like, tell your, children, tell your children to hear this, elders. He's not talking about elders of the church now, the older generation. Hear this, tell your children. Look at all the action words. Awake, drunkard. Like, don't put your head in the sand about this. Lament. Cry and mourn and weep. Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything. Be ashamed, it even says here, because this is a result, obviously, of their sin. Because all you worked for is vanished. And then he says in verse 13, to repent and put on sackcloth and ashes and call out for God. These are desperate times, and what God is calling the people to is in a desperate time with desperate pleas for God that are needed. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, it's kind of more doom and gloom. It's more hardship. It's hard days are coming. Beware of an enemy invasion. 
Look at how chapter 2 starts. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Think, think of like the, the tornado sirens in the United States, you know, where the whole city hears. Or when we were in Israel, we happened to be there on their Remembrance Day. And, and what's, that? what's that siren? It sounds like there's a war going to happen. And, and everyone stopped for a minute of silence as the, the siren around the whole nation could be heard. And that's sort of the siren that he's saying here. Blow a trumpet, O Zion, sound an alarm because... War's going to happen. Worse than the locusts, if the people don't turn back to God, he says he's going to bring an army down. And, and this army is going to bring a day of doom and gloom and darkness. Worse than the darkest day we've ever had on this earth. Not, not just the darkest days. And remember the, you know, the stock market meltdown on that Monday, the Black Monday. And 9-11 was a dark day. This was going to be worse off than that. Notice the day of doom and darkness when God met... God met Moses on Mount Sinai. There was darkness that covered, just a symbol, a little bit of his presence. And then basically goes on to say that they're going to come with their horses, their chariots. And some people think it's just expanding on the locust, but it's not because it clearly here says in, in here that it's, it's people, a great and powerful people, it says in verse 2. And so God's saying hey, there's going to be an army coming from the north and it's going to come. And if you don't repent, there's going to be more judgment, more judgment and they're going to come with their horses. Can you imagine back then? You didn't have a horse to ride. There's horses and chariots are coming. They're burning everything. They're looting everything. Again, you look at the news. We see a little bit of this going on today. And Yet intense is this because in verse 15 of chapter 1, it says this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. So the locusts are actually not just a bad luck day. It's actually from, what's that verse say? It's from where? It's from God, the Almighty. And then if you look at the end of the section in chapter 2, it says this, the Lord utters his voice before whose army is coming to destroy. Whose army is it? The Lord, Lord utters his voice before whose army? His army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Not as in like, awesome, can't wait. Awesome is like, oh my goodness, I've never could have thought this or dreamed of this. Like God's judgment is over the top. Who can endure it, it says. Let's just stop for a minute. I know that's why most people don't read Joel because they're like, what in the world is going on here? Like, this is intense. Like Joel, like, is he being like the mean big brother, you know, who all they needed, the little brother needs is a poke and like a, hey, dad wants you, but he says he slaps him in the back of the head. Hey, dad's trying to get your attention. What'd you do that for? Is that, is that what Joel's all about? It's not. He's not all about that. We're going to learn a lot of grace and hope and promise on the day of judgment for believers. But here's the reality that, that, that God's trying to tell us through the book of Joel, like sometimes Things happen in our lives in a world that are actually God's righteous judgment upon us and our world that we need to take heed to. Here's the bottom line from the first little section here I've just, just given you. You can write this in your notes as application. It's the application for this is really seeing the character of God. God has all authority to judge and bring hardship as he deems best. Who is God to do this? He is God. And he reigns in all authority. He's loving, yes, but he's holy and he's righteous and he's just. And he is the one who has, only one who has all the authority to judge your life and my life and the culture that we live in. Psalm 75, verse 7, but it is God who executes judgment. And in fact, in the New Testament, we find that God actually gave Jesus the right to judge. And so Jesus now holds all judgment. Yes, Jesus is Savior. Yes, Jesus is Savior, but he's also our judge. I know it's messing with some of your nice, neat, little, tidy theology of God's like this eternal grandfather who just wants to bless us, kind of like the, the, the cosmic vending machine in your life. And yes, he gives us great gifts, but he's also the holy judge. This was says in John 5, 22, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Ephesians 1 tells us that, that Jesus is above all ruler, authority, power, and dominion with everything under his feet. Let's just understand this, brothers and sisters, that God has all authority to do whatever he wants to do in our lives, including judge us. Our job is to get under and submit and surrender to him. Is that your God today? 
Is that, is that the God you worship, the God you serve, or do you have your own version of God, your own version of Jesus you've created in your head and that gives you the warm fuzzies? That's how you can worship. Well, this is the true God, the true Jesus of the Bible. Still worthy of our worship, still worthy of our love, but a God who also judges and is going to judge. That's what Joel's about. He's going to come and judge. More on that in a minute. But here's the second thing we learned from just the, the, the doom and gloom part of this is, is this. God will go to drastic measures to simply get our attention. Don't forget, Israel is still God's people. The, the land is still his land. They're set apart for him, and yet he still does this. He still goes to drastic measures to get their attention. Now, this is baffling to me because it doesn't mention any sin in particular in this whole book. It doesn't mention idolatry or idolatry. It doesn't mention like, like lying and, and scheming and murder. It doesn't mention any of those things. All we can assume from this is that there was sin. And the bottom line is this. God's people had come to a place where their eyes were closed to the reality of who he is. Their fingers were stuck in their ears uh, when it came to listening to his voice. Their arms were crossed in stubborn rebellion. When God said turn right, they chose to turn left every time and somehow they found themselves in this place of desolation. Why? Because God was simply exercising a tough love. We all know tough love, right? It's like the parent who will do anything to get their kid back when their kid's in drugs. He's going to cause you a little pain, son, but we're taking you to rehab. We're going to do it. I don't want to go. It doesn't matter. We're doing it because we love you. God will do whatever it takes. Even drastic measures to get our attention back. You ever thought of your hardships as the hand of God of judgment upon your life for maybe the things that you think are little, but God sees them as big? You ever thought of the hardship of God as ordained by God to draw you closer to him and not actually drive you further away from him? Because sometimes, isn't it true, that's the only way that God can get our attention, is the only way he can get us to stop talking is to bring a hardship. The only way we can get us to a place of, of, of actually stopping to plan my own life and get on his will is to bring us difficulty. The only way he gets us to sometimes stop being busy and to have time for him is to bring a really difficult season to our lives where we have to stop. I think sometimes we trivially just walk through these hard seasons and think that it's of the enemy, where sometimes it's of God. And the reason the seasons linger so long is because we don't stop to actually acknowledge God, take a good look inside our hearts and see if maybe God could be doing this because I am being disobedient. Maybe I'm complacent. Maybe I'm selfish. Maybe I'm prideful. Maybe I'm confessing God, but I'm actually living for myself. Now, I don't want, you to get, don't want you to get it wrong here. It's not, it's not that every hardship is sin. You don't be those judgy Christians. Oh, going through a hardship, you must be sinning. That's not it either. But sometimes it is. Sometimes it is. When you go through hardships, it's good to stop and ask yourself the question first. Could this be God's loving, righteous judgment upon my life to get me back on track, to get me closer to him? Instead of trying to run around it, instead of trying to deny it or power over it, just sitting under it, say, okay, God, you've got it. What's it for? Reveal my heart. Show me your character. Show me your ways. Cause me to repent and come back to you. I don't know. I don't know what's going on in your life. I don't know. You don't know what's going on in my life. But sometimes this is the way that God acts in our lives. We can't dismiss it or pass over it. That's why Joel is so powerful. He just says it like it is. Don't you love those guys? Actually, no, I don't like them. But we need them. But the second part of this is encouraging because throughout the whole book, we also see this, not just that God brings hardship sometimes to, to refine us and discipline us and bring us back to him, but the second point in this whole book is this, God designed hardships to be his restorative instrument in my life. God's assigned hardships to be his restorative instrument in my life, all this darkness and all this gloom, and, and some people think, well, it's all doom and gloom, and there's no, there's, there's no presence of God there. God is light. This is all dark, and where is God? God is here in the midst of this. But isn't the Christian life supposed to all be about campfires and kumbayas, not 
judgments of fire? Isn't the Christian life supposed to be all smiles and giggles, not weeping and mourning? Isn't the Christian life supposed to be a big party with food galore, not like striving, struggling to make ends meet? Isn't it? It's not. Sorry to burst your bubble. It's not. It's not. The Christian life is about recognizing the authority and the power of God and being under whatever he brings our way. And in the book of Joel, we find that there's a lot of judgment going on. There's lots going on here, but God's ultimate good plan is going to shine through because the day, the day that we look forward to, uh, uh, that the unbelieving world looks forward to as judgment, God has designed the day to bring hope and restoration and reconciliation to his very own because God is a covenant-keeping God or a promise-keeping God. Throughout this whole book, we still see this. God, look at verse 27 of chapter 2. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and I am the God, the Lord your God, and there is no one else. God is still for his people no matter what. Chapter 3, verse 17, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This is why hardships come. This is why catastrophes come sometimes, just so that we will know for sure that there is one God. He is ours, and he will have our full attention. God is an attention-getting God, an affection-desiring God, because that's what he deserves. And this whole book is about calling God's people back to him. It's not like you're going to be judged. I'm going to sit here and smile and I'm going to kick you while you're down. It's, no, it's like, it's like, here's the judgment. Now come back to me. Can return to me. This is a call to return to him. Find yourself in times of judgment. Then don't, don't do anything but get on your knees and say, God, I am sorry. I want to return to you. God's judgment for God's people is always restorative and reconciliatory. Not punishment. And pushing further away, look at chapter 1, verse 12, a call to repentance. Sorry, verse 13, a call to repentance. Because of the locusts, because of the armies. Well, first is the locusts. Because of the locusts, here's what he's saying. He's saying, put on a sackcloth and lament. Don't get your Sunday best on and comb your hair. Look all pressed. This is not the time for that. There's a time to put your sackcloth on and just cover the bare necessities and show the desperate reality of where your heart is really at and what you need the most, the Lord. Look who says it to the priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Because you can't even offer sacrifices in this time. Consecrate a fast, he says here. What you need right now is not another meal. What you need right now is a spiritual meal from God. You need God more than anything else. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and the inhabitants of the land. To call to repent, Hebrews in the Hebrew language, this word repent means regret or feel remorse or to change one mind. It means to return or to come home. If you notice in chapter 2, after the, here's what he's calling. He's calling to repent, to confess your sins and come back to him. If you don't do that, more hardships common in the form of an army. But even that hardship, look what it says in verse 12 of chapter 2. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Why does God allow hardships that will return with all of our hearts, with fasting and weeping and with mourning and rend your hearts and not your garments? Look, it says again, repent and return are kind of the same word. Return to the Lord, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. It's a come back to God moment. Could this be what God is doing in COVID-19? Could it be? I know you're not going to hear it preached much because we skip the minor prophets because it's so hard to swallow sometimes, but could it be? Because without knowing it, we've wandered so far. We're doing all the right things. We're going to church. We're saying all the right prayers. We're reading our Bibles when we can get around to it. But in our hearts, we've wandered so far from God that he had to do something drastic to get our attention again. And now what he's calling us to is simply come home. Come home, return, repent. Remember your, your salvation when you first were saved and how fired up you are? And maybe you're so cold right now that you haven't felt that in a long time. Come back. You used to share your faith like, like, like nobody else's business and you've strayed from that because you just got so content in your life. Well, come back to God and get excited about the things that, that matter most. Simply put, this whole judgment thing is basically God on the front steps of his house because he's watched his children walk away, begging them to come back. Remember when you were a kid and you ran away? Ever remember running away when you were a kid? I think we all did, right? We're packing our bags and where we're going to go. 
My dad used to always say, well, if you're going to leave, then you leave with what you came with. Why didn't you come with anything? Correct. Drop your pants, drop your shirt, and see you later. That cured it pretty quick. Remember once my sister got like out the door though before he got that out, I knew it was coming. I'm like, tell her, dad, tell her, you know, and she got out the door. She knew it was coming, so she got out before I could give her a little speech. And she, she's out the door, and I was like, dad, she left. You're going to come go get her? And he's like, she'll be back. You can see the worried, on his, the worried look on his face. It was winter in Thunder Bay. Like, that's never a good place to leave home. Not a smart plan. And so I remember sitting in the, in the front window watching her. My mom and dad were there too. And I'm like, she's really mad this time. Dad, she's really, I was this young. She's really leaving, Dad. She's really leaving. You got to go get her. And he's like, you know what? I'll go get her. Don't you worry. But she'll be back in five minutes. And he pretended to not be worried, but I could see him. It was freezing cold. And we seen him watching her, you know, around the block. And she got to the corner. She stopped, looked back, see if we're looking. We all ducked under the curtains. You know what I mean? Saw her turn the corner and. I was getting nervous, you know, grade two or three, whatever. Like, Dad, you got to go get her. He's like, she'll be back. Sure enough, a few minutes later, like, we all run to the door. like, you're back. Dad's like, what are you doing here? She's like, I had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> well, now that you're here, door shut, locked, let's talk. Welcomed her back instantly. No questions asked, just honestly just wanted her to come home. That, that, that's why God allows hardships. That's why he sometimes allows us to walk into the cold, dark afternoons of Thunder Bay, minus 90 with wind chill. Simply so that we'll realize that how much we need God and how much we desperately want God and we'll only take a short stroll around the block and come back. And when we come back, here's the deal. God welcomes us back every single time, but it takes this. This is what he wants to teach us from the book of Joel. It takes this. It takes a heart of repentance. It takes a desire to come back, a humility to walk back in the house, admit we were wrong, and pursue after God hard once again. I, I love this because there's so much repentance. There's so much, there's so much call to simply come back and I believe that we've cheapened repentance in our world today. We've made it sound simple. Like you just got to say sorry and nothing's going to go wrong. And you just got to keep doing what you're going to do. But, but God shows us true repentance in the book of Joel. He words, uses words like lament and fast and weep and mourn. Do you realize that our sin is against a holy God every single time? And he does not take our sin lightly. Everybody sins. Absolutely. But God does not take our sin lightly. And he wants us in those seasons where we find ourselves deep in sin or deep in hardship because of our sin maybe to simply get on our knees and come back to him. Our sin is first and foremost against God, not your neighbor, not your friend, not your family. It's against God. And the one relationship we need the most is our relationship with God himself. And so if you read this afternoon, Joel chapter 1, verse 12, verse 13 to the end, and then you read uh, Joel chapter 2, verses 18, uh, right up until uh, verse 20, uh, we, sorry, 18 and 19, 18 and 19, you'll see this, you'll see this, that God is calling, not 18 and 19, 12 and 13, you'll see this, that God is calling us back to him in repentance, and it gives us a picture of what biblical repentance is. Here's what it is according to the book of Joel. It's a heart initiation thing. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 12. Return to the Lord with what? Your whole heart. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Repentance isn't simply going to sorry with no real effect on your, soul, your real being. It's, it's a, I need you again, God. I want my heart to be yours again. It hasn't been and I need it to be. It's an earnest contrition. Lament and fast and weep. It's a plead for intervention. Psalm 51 style against you, O God, I've sinned. Have mercy on me. Renew me. Clean me. Do your work in me. It's a genuine invitation. God, come and reign in me again. I have to be honest. I read God's call to repentance here. My first thing is like, have I ever truly repented? I don't know about you, but I've never got the sackcloth out for everyone else's benefit and mine, but this whole idea of repentance before God, and it's not just a one-time thing. It's not like, remember when we first became saved, you're like, oh, I know you're a blubbering mess. I know I'm a sinner. I need repentance. And yet Israel had to repent over and over and over and over and over and over again. God's showing us, as in Matthew says, to keep with the fruit of repentance in our lives. Let me just ask you the question. When was the last time you truly repented like God is calling his people to in the book of Joel? 
Like, stop the planning, stop the meal. You don't need sleep right now. You need to get on your face and repent. There's stuff going on in your heart that you're not dealing with, and it's not going to get easier until you get before me and get clean. Some of us maybe have never repented in our lives. We've bought into this whole like superficial, like, sorry, God, yeah, he loves me, keep going. We've never really repented. There's been no heart change in our lives. Zero, none. Someone would ask you, what were you like before Christ? What are you like now? You're like, oh, pretty much the same. Bit of an awareness of God now, trying to dabble in the word for guidance. And... Brothers and sisters, we've got to get back to the heart of repentance. And that's what true salvation is, is truly repenting. I'm a blubbering mess. I don't care what I look like right now. I need God. I don't need food. I don't need sleep. I need God. I'm not going to get up off my face until I know that I'm good with God. You think God wants you happy. He actually wants you holy because that makes you happy in the long run. Let's ask the question. Anything you need to repent for in your own lives right now? Life getting difficult and God's just trying to show you like, hey man, like, It's time to get serious with God. I know God brings me to these seasons more often than I like to admit. Why is it so hard? Why is this my soul in angst? Because you haven't stopped to repent in a long, long time. Let me assure you this. Repentance isn't a once a year thing on the day of atonement, whatever that day is for you. It's continual listening to the voice of God and seeing where you're straying from God and allowing God to bring you to the mat only that he will pick you back up again. Repentance is a fruit of a believer that restores you with Jesus. I think it's time to get the sackcloth out again in our own hearts, in our own homes, maybe even in our church. I need to repent of my own sin. I leave that with you to ask God to check your heart and maybe through COVID even. God's showing you and growing you and don't minimize what God's trying to do in your life. He wants to purify you and refine you. But we see in this chapter too, it's, it's not just our own sin. We need to also come together as a church and repent of sin. That's what he's calling them to. Like elders, get your people together, priests and ministers, like mourn over sin, weep and lament. When was the last time we as a church actually got on our faces and started to weep over the things that we know we should be weeping about that, that maybe we're comfortable with our nice little comfortable church right now, but God's not comfortable with that. Maybe we as a church need to repent of our complacency and our pride and our self-sufficiency and our lack of care for other people, and our lack of unity, maybe, and our lack of evangelism. I think sometimes God brings the hammer. It's a velvet hammer, just so you know. It hurts, but it's soft because it's in his loving kindness. Repentance is a must to actually walk fully with our God, individually as a church, not just to talk about, but to do. Knowing this, that when we repent, God will relent. Maybe the reason we're not experiencing God the way we think we should be is because there's a sin that we haven't repented of. Maybe in our church, the reason we're not experiencing the fruit that we long for is because there's repentance that has to happen, and we're just too plain, stubborn, and proud to do that. But when we do that, we know this, that God's kindness will shine through, that God's kindness not may shine through, God's kindness will shine through. I love this in this, this, these chapters. We see in chapter 2, verse 13, that this is the character of God. This is why God calls us to repent, and because he wants to relent, that he will, he's a gracious and a merciful God. Yes, he's judged, but he's gracious and he's mercifully slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I don't know about you, but I want to say thank the Lord at this point, right? Like, thank you, God. I know that my sin deserves locusts and armies, and yet when I repent, you're merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And look at this. He relents over disaster. Maybe sometimes our disasters linger way too long because we're just too stubborn to repent because when we repent, God promises he will what? He will relent. 
Verse 14 says, well, maybe he's going to relent, maybe not. Maybe he's going to leave a blessing for them. It's kind of rhetorical. Of course he's going to relent, and of course he's going to leave a blessing. The re- chapter 2, verse 18 tells us the Lord became jealous for his land. That's why he, all these things were, he was jealous for his people, not jealous as an arrogant, because when a husband really loves his wife, man, they're jealous for their wife. They don't want her flirting with other men. A husband who lets his wife flirt with other men, like that's just ridiculous, right? He doesn't love her. He'll do whatever he takes to get her attention back. That's what God is doing here. He's, he's, he's jealous for his people. He sees their eyes wandering over everybody and everything else. And so he, he's jealous for her and he brings the hardship. But then look at this. He had pity on his people. He had compassion on them. Because just like us, when we discipline our kids, no one likes it. When we discipline our kids and we hear them in their rooms sobbing after we've disciplined them. We go to our room and how do you feel? Parents, you don't go there like, yes, God, I'm good this time. Oh, I hope they cry all night. You don't. You have pity on them. And you go to your room and you talk with your wife. Were we a little too harsh with that one? Maybe we shouldn't lose electronics all day. He comes back and says, sorry, maybe we'll relent a little bit. Because that's the heart of God when he sees his people in pain. Even if he is the orchestrator of that pain, his divine sovereignty for our good, he still has pity on our lives. And when we call out to him, he will relent. And not just relent a little bit, but look at this. If you look at this, the end of chapter 2 here, the Lord had pity. This whole section is filled. I can't go through it all this morning. This is why it's so hard to preach this. I want to give you every single one in great detail. I can't. But here's what it says here, that God God relents in this fashion. Look at verse 19. He answered. When you return to God, guess what? He's going to answer. He's always going to open the door. He's always going to welcome you in. He's always going to take your snowsuit off and make you hot chocolate and get you by the fire. Look at this. The Lord answered and said this to his people. Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. In other words, like, it wasn't forever. It never meant, it was meant to be forever. I will, I will meet your needs in great fashion, verse 19. Verse 20, I will drive out the enemies. You repent and I will drive the enemies far away. Verses 22 to 24, I'll return your fortunes. I love it. Verse 25 is such a key one. I circled this one. And I'll restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Not only will I be nice to you and gracious to you, but I will now also give you everything that was stolen. I'll give it back to you in greater measure. Reminds you of Job, doesn't it? Remember Job lost everything at the end? God gave him everything back doubly what he lost. But even gets better, it goes on to say this. Verse 27, he's going to dwell with his people. This is the greatest part. You shall know that I am your God and I am in your midst. I'll, I'll once again inhabit your heart and inhabit your home and inhabit your church and inhabit your land. And then he promises to pour out his spirit on all people. Or pour out his spirit on his people. This is actually what Peter, in the first sermon after Pentecost, this is the quote from Peter saying, saying that, that, that God's going to pour his spirit on all people. So this prophecy of Joel actually came true at Pentecost. But isn't that a return? Restore your fortunes and your blessings and dwell with you. And not only that, I'm going to pour my spirit upon you. They had never heard of this in Joel's day. What's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus Christ, the cross, the crucifixion, the resurrection, Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father and leaving the Holy Spirit behind. It's pointing to ultimate redemption in Jesus Christ that we can now live by the Spirit of God. So the point is, he says here, just come back to me. I circled these verses too, verses 21 and 22. Look what it says there. Fear not. Fear not. It says it twice. I think sometimes we get in this place where the enemy says, I know, I know I need to repent. I know that God's kindness is going to shine through. I know, I know, I know, but I'm just, I'm just scared to repent. I'm scared to come back to God. Oh, is he going to bless me this time? Is he going to reject me? That's the enemy. Fear not. You don't have to fear God. You don't have to fear repentance. You don't have to fear anything. You don't have to fear judgment. Because verse 32 says this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Be saved. It's a powerful little book, isn't it? God's judgment, but his blessing. Let me summarize chapter three and then we're done here quickly. Chapter three, the shortest summary I'll give you. But it's this, God's final judgment has monumental implications for all people. This whole book is pointing to God's final judgment when he's going to come back one day and judge all people, believer and unbeliever. 
as a final act before he sets up his new kingdom here on earth. Chapter 2, verses 30 to 32, just show you that it's going to be a monumental day. It's going to be a day where there's wonders in the heavens, a day of judgment. When God comes back, it's going to be wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun is going to be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. It's going to be this powerful day. And then God's basically, chapter 3, is going to line up all the nations in the valley of, of um, Jezreel. And is it Jezreel? It's going to... Jehoshaphat, sorry, the valley of Jehoshaphat. He's going to line up all the nations. He's going to line them up Braveheart style. For the unbeliever, he's going to put them to final judgment. And yet at the end of this, it says for the, for the believer, for the believer, verses 17 and 18, but you shall know that I am your God and you will dwell in Zion, where God dwells, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem will be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains will drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream breads of Judah shall flow with water and the fountain will come forth from the house of the Lord and, the, and water the valley of Shittim. And yet Egypt will become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. In other words, here's the, here's the deal. At the end of this time, at the end of the time, all pointing to the end times, all pointing to the end times, and the end times, Jesus is going to come back. That's the first step. Then he's going to take his saints with him. He's going to come back to judge the living and the dead. And those who know Jesus Christ, those who know Jesus Christ will skip the final judgment and be put in eternity with him forever in the holy city, in heaven, in glory, in eternity with Jesus. But those who don't put their hope in Jesus will be left to eternal judgment and destruction. For the believer, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. For the unbeliever, I wish I would have listened. I wish I would have heeded the call. I wish I would know Jesus. Desolation versus abundance. Dread versus dismay. Bottom line is this, the day of God's judgment is coming. It's circled on his calendar. Can't erase it. Can't rip that page off. Can't pretend it's not going to come. It's coming. And it's going to be fierce. And it's not going to be pretty. For us believers, man, we, we're safe. We know that. We're safe. But man, do we want to tell everybody else we know that they won't have to endure the judgment of the living God. That day's coming. We need to live in light of that day. Because as we saw here, there is going to be some account for the believer as well when we get into heaven. The day of judgment is coming, and ultimately the day of decision is here. Verse 14 of chapter 3. See this? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. If you're a believer today, you're good. You're golden. Thank you, Lord. For an unbeliever today, it's a valley of decision. Now that you've just listened to this message and you've stuck it through to the very end, this has been for you to get your attention. To show you that there is more to this life than you're experiencing right now. There is a God of the universe. There's a Jesus Christ who came and lived and actually died for our sin that we might have forgiveness and relationship with God restored. There is a day coming where you will be held to account for whether, for whether you either reject Jesus or embrace Jesus. And God's heart in bringing you this sermon, God's heart in sending you Jesus, is that you would embrace Jesus Christ and embrace God as your God through faith and repentance. I believe. I turn from my sin. I turn to Jesus. And because you've heard this now, this is your valley of decision. This is the day. This is the day that God has anointed for you to be your valley of decision. Will you turn to Jesus or you continue to walk in the hardness of heart that will bring judgment and it's going to get harder and harder until the final judgment, which is going to be final and complete forever? Will you turn today and see the gracious, merciful God who does bring hardship and judgment, but only to get you to come back to him, to come to him for the first time. Will you come? Maybe you're here today and you know that, man, you haven't been in that place with God that you know you should have been for a long, long time. And it has been hard. And it's been messy and it hasn't been easy. Will you come today? Will you stop passing off a circumstance and see this, this is God's hand of 
judgment maybe upon your life? Will you come today and be restored and renewed in Jesus Christ, the fullness of life that he promised? For all of us, we live our lives in light of the glory of Jesus, but also the return of God on final day of judgment. Motivating, exhilarating in some ways, invigorating to give her all to Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. As he's given us all to us, let me pray. God, we thank you this morning for your loving kindness and your mercy in even giving us hard passages like this. God, you know the state of every heart, mine included. Would we not quickly run away from this message, Lord, and get on with our daily routine or all the things we've planned for today. But God, would you speak loud and clear into all of our hearts? God, where repentance is needed, give us humility to repent, Lord. Give us conviction of the Holy Spirit. Press in on our lives where we need to truly repent of our sin and return to you. God, for those that maybe don't know you at all, would you draw them near to yourself, God? Would, you, would they see your glory and your goodness? Would they see you as the ultimate king and ultimate authority of their lives? Would there be salvations from this message, God, in this place, at home right now? Would people turn to you and give you their lives? Would we all, Father, I pray, walk in step with the fullness of Jesus Christ? Forgive us from our sin, O oh Lord, collectively as a church. Forgive us for our sin individually. Purify us, God. Give us hearts that long, that long, that long to be right with God and walk in the fullness of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you, Lord. Right now in the quietness of this moment, we're just asking that you speak, you've spoken with the megaphone, that you speak with a small whisper into every soul listening. Show us who you are. Show us who we are. Show us how we can be right and tight with you. Amen.